Well, good morning. Last Sunday, we started our study on John chapter 17. Now, you may not really be familiar with John 17, but you need to know there's it's a very unique chapter in the Bible. There's really nothing else like it. I mean, you, you, you think through where it's at, 17, okay? Because 13 through 16, what was going on was what we call the upper room discourse. You know, it's the Last Supper. Now, the apostles didn't know it was going to be the Last Supper, right? But Jesus knew. And so they go into this thing, and the disciples, apostles, they're feeling great. I mean, the crowds were just screaming for Jesus to be king, and they know Jesus. They know he can walk on the water, and he could raise people from the dead, and he can, he can multiply the, the, the fishes and loaves. He's like bulletproof, and therefore they're bulletproof, and things are looking good. I mean, they're, they're great. But then in the meal, Jesus, you know, kind of unplugs the party a little bit, and he says, I'm going away. And y'all need to know that this very night, things are going to crash. It's not going to be what you're thinking. And so they're all kind of, their minds are running. What's going on? What's going to happen? And and then the, the, the supper's over, and they're going to get ready to head towards Gethsemane. And we know what happens at Gethsemane, right? Uh, one of Jesus' apostles betrays him, sells him out. All of the rest of the apostles abandon him, leave him alone. His best friend, apostle, that night will deny that he even knows him three different times. Jesus' body is going to be shredded. Jesus is going to endure pain, the worst human body can possibly take. He's then going to become the sin of the world, full father's wrath. We have no categories for even figuring that one out. And so uh, you got the Last Supper going on here, and you got Gethsemane here right in the middle. Chapter 17, Jesus prays this prayer. Now, it's fascinating because most of Jesus' prayers in the Bible are private. It just says Jesus prayed. It really doesn't tell us a whole lot of what was said because uh, Godhead, right? Jesus the Son, God the Son, praying to God the Father. I'm guessing those prayers are way beyond us and maybe very personal things. But here, Jesus decides that he's going to pray this prayer in earshot of his apostles because he knows what they're going to be facing. And he knows what they're going to need. And somehow, Jesus knows if what he's going to be saying in this prayer, if they can catch, if they can understand, that's going to help them make it and be what he wants them to be. Same for us. If we understand John 17 and our our understanding of worship and of God and of ourselves, it's it's going to take a radically different level. Now, uh, in fascinating, in, in uh, when Jesus dies, after he dies, he's resurrected, he goes up to heaven. What's he doing in heaven? Well, Hebrews 7 lets us know that he's in heaven today. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Okay, That means he's praying for us. And maybe you're kind of, I mean, I was, I was here at one point. You know, Jesus, let me see, when he created the world way back when, okay, that was cool. Then I'm not sure, you know, what he did before then, you know, maybe sat around and angels sang to him on harps and stuff. I don't know what they did, but, but okay. And then the Old Testament, he shows up a couple of times incognito. All right. Then he's born, okay, and all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, miracles and teaching and then his work of atonement, his death and resurrection. That was pretty cool. And, and I know, according to the book of Revelation, what he's going to do when he comes back. Oh, baby, it's going to be fireworks. It's going to be huge. 
But what he's doing between the time he left and the revelation thing, I'm really not sure. It says he's sitting down. Maybe he's resting because, you know, the revelation thing can be so big. And he's praying. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, if you want, got someone, you want someone to pray for, you probably want Jesus. That's probably going to be cool. But it's almost like maybe he's just killing time. You know what I'm saying? He's just waiting for the revelation thing. He's just kind of taking his time easy and he'll pray in a little bit. And, and you need to know this about Jesus. He's never killing time. Ever. What he does, whatever he does, is uh, radically important. Let me, let me say it this way. Jesus' intercessory work is just as important to you as his work of atonement. You, you, you hear that? Jesus' work of intercession, prayer, is just as important to you as his work of atonement. Jesus doesn't waste time. And yeah, it was his work of atonement that saves us, but it's work of intercession that keeps us. If Jesus ever quit praying for us, I mean, it's like everything is off. It all, don't worry, he's not going to, but it would all be done at that point. And so, so Jesus is, John 17, D.A. Carson says, is, is the center it's the crux of, of the Gospel of John, and it's like a transition. Jesus has, is transitioning from his earthly work to his heavenly work. And so when we look into John 17, we get an idea of how Jesus is praying right now for us. And so we, we really want to dig. We, we mentioned that this is not, if you're, if you're new with this, Neil, this is not a fluffy type series. This is, this is like Theology 301 type stuff. We're going into stuff that really all we can do is be quiet and be hushed as we listen to God and the Father and God the Son converse. So if you've got your Bibles, will you turn with me, John 17, if maybe you've got a, a Bible app. You know what? I, I found, if you don't have a Bible app, just Google John 17. It will get you right, right there. John chapter 17. Now, last week when we talked about this, first five verses, we mentioned that Jesus, in the first five, 26 verses in this chapter, not a ton, first five, Jesus prays for himself. And he only asks one thing for himself. And if you think about this, he's going into Gethsemane, where all this bad stuff is going to happen, and he knows that. If it was me, well, I mean, what would you pray? I mean, I, I think this whole prayer would be for me, and I would be praying for like a miracle, anesthesia. I mean, let's just get through this thing. Let's have it, make it happen. Hurry, don't let it hurt so bad. Let's get it done. Let me die right away. Let's just get rid of this thing and get by it to the resurrection. That's what I want. But Jesus prays one thing for himself. First five verses, one thing, and that is this. Would you help my life to glorify you, Father? That's, that's his prayer. Amazing. Amazing. And, and then for the rest of the rest of the chapter, the whole rest of the chapter, he prays for we're going to get into that. Let's start right in chapter 17, verse 6. That's where we left off last week. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I have manifested your name. What in the world is that? mean well manifested right to uh make seen to reveal i revealed you know your name the name big thing in scripture you know the name of the lord is a strong tower the righteous run to it and safe or safe so the the name was a, a big thing 
in uh, Exodus 3. If you remember this, Moses is hanging out in the desert. He's long since left Egypt. All the other Israelites are kind of hanging out in Egypt. It's bad for them. And goes, God comes to Moses in the desert and says, I want you to go back there and get my people. And you know the whole story. Moses, Wah, I'm not going back there. And God talks to him. They argue a little bit. And Moses says, um, if I go back there and they say, who sent you? I mean, they're just going to believe me. I'm just going to walk on into the, to the, the, the Pharaoh's house, right? And say, let my people go. And I'm just going to tell the Israelites, trust me. And they're going to do it. What am I going to say when they say, oh yeah, who sent you? What am I going to tell them? And God says, you're going to tell them. And here's where God gives his personal name that Yahweh, that's his name, Yahweh. It means I am sent you. Now, Yahweh means, uh, it's, it's, it's a personal name. It's a name of friendship. It's like if you're calling Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones, and you're calling Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones, and after a while, Mr. Jones stops you and says, listen, will you call me Dennis? You can call me Dennis. What's going on there is we've reached a level in our relationship. We're now friends. And so when Jesus says, God says, my name is Yahweh, it's, it's friendship, it's, it's covenant. And then you remember last week, if, you're, if you weren't here last week at the CD, listen to it online, it's free that way. Um, but but what, remember, God and, and Moses in Exodus 33 are talking. And Moses prays, he says, God, let me see your glory. And God tells him, oh, Moses, you don't have a clue what you're asking. See, my glory is like a thousand times brighter than the sun. And if you see it, it's gonna, you're gonna be dead in a second. My glory is like a thousand times hotter than any furnace, and it's gonna incinerate you immediately. You can't see my glory and live. But, but, but then he says this, and I don't have this on the screen, so just listen for a second. Chapter 33, he's talking with Moses, and the Lord says to him, God, God says, I got a plan though. He says, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face, this is full orb glory, you shall not see. So Moses goes up to this place on the mountain and, and, and Exodus 34, 5 through 8, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, hang on, wait a minute. What is this proclaimed the name of the Lord? He didn't ask for that. He knows his name. It's Yahweh. He didn't want to proclaim the name of the Lord. He just wanted to see his glory. But God's glory is really, really, really tied up with God's name, right? And so he proclaims the name of the Lord. The, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord, now you, you know this, right, from your English Bibles, when you see Lord with all capitals, that's Yahweh. That's his personal name. They just, it's their English way of, of dealing with it. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Listen how he explains himself. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He says, says, but I'm no pushover, right? But who will by no means clear the guilty? There's justice here. It's not everybody's okay. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And look what Moses does when he, when he understands who God is. When he, on one level, sees at least a portion of God's glory, understands God's name. He understands who he is. 
Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped when we understand who God is, when his name has been revealed to us. Um, his name, it's not, Jesus doesn't care what God is called. He doesn't care that the people know that as much as he cares that the people know who he is. When we understand who he is, we worship. It's impossible to not worship when you understand who who he is. And so that's why Jesus in Colossians 1, it just tells us, and there's a ton of verses, but it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus revealed the Father, who he is. And, and that that's part of what he was called to do. And so, so who, though, does he reveal the Father to? It's important. It says, I have, chapter 17, verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Not everybody. The people whom you gave me, yours they were, and you gave them to me. So the rest of this chapter, he's praying for his church. Now, why is he, is he, is he praying for the church? Well, this is the deal. He, he is, knows he's going to be leaving, but he's going to be leaving his disciples behind, and it's going to be tough for him. And he, know, he knows this. In chapter 17, verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. In, in other words, these guys he's leaving behind, he expects them to do all the work that he did. He expects them to reveal the Father. He expects them to carry on his mission. And he knows that hell's not going to just let that happen. And the world's not going to just let that happen. It's going to be tough. And so he's praying for his church. That's why he's praying for us. Jesus is really all about his church. Think about Jesus for a minute. Just think about him for a minute. He comes down to earth, leaves, leaves the glories of heaven. I don't know, air conditioning, you know, nice golden streets. This is perfection, right? He leaves it. So he can come down here and be born in a stinking barn and have people beat on him and spit on him and call him names and ridicule him and blame him and, 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 and frame him and everything else. Why? For the church. And he teaches things that we have here for the church. And he's going to be crucified for the church, and he's going to be resurrected for the church. He prayed for the church. He's living today for one purpose, to pray for the church and to prepare the church a place. He's going to come back one day for the church. Jesus is magnificently obsessed with the church. I mean, everything about Jesus is church, 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 church. You think your parents, maybe they went to church all the time. No, they're nowhere compared to Jesus. He's magnificently obsessed with the church. And you might say, you know what, I, I, I know all about the church. I kind of grew up in the church, and I don't know where Jesus is coming from with this one. Because I got some issues with the church. Uh, 1615, Miguel Cervantes wrote Don Quixote, Man of La Mancha. This is a kind of a cool story. I just came up, came up upon this myself. I'd heard of it, but I never read it. Anyway, um, Don Quixote, he's, he's, he reads all these books about knighthood and chivalry and all these kind of things. And it kind of drives him insane. And he starts thinking that he's a knight. And so he, he gets his poor neighbor named Pancho to kind of believe it, believe he's a squire. And they go off seeking adventures and righting wrongs and all this kind of thing. Problem with Don Quixote is he sees everything through the talk about optimism, he's got a lady that he's that he's 
doing all this for because that's what knights did, right? Well, when you hear about the reality of who this lady is, you're going, ah, what is this about? He comes across some women of the evening, if you know what I'm talking about. Just kind of, but he sees them as fair damsels. He comes across a broken down, dilapidated inn, but it's a castle. He comes across this, this basin. This is just a basin, but it's a special helmet for knights. So he takes this thing and he puts it on. He's wearing this bucket on his head. He sees everything very optimistically, but just not correct. We think sometimes, maybe we don't really say this, but wonder if Jesus has just a little Don Quixote type stuff going on. He sees the church. Jesus, you're looking at the same church I'm looking at. Because I don't see it your way. I just really don't. I don't, I don't, don't see it. As, as, as such, Barna conducted a study where Americans were asked this question. Americans were asked, can you be a good Christian and not be a part of the church? 86% of Americans said, absolutely. Matter of fact, some of them said, if you're a good Christian, you won't be a part of a church. Because the church, the church is just a, just, just a mess. So can you live a life that, there's our question, can you live a life that honors Jesus and, and have disdain, disregard, apathy for the church? Can you imagine, by the way, I hope Barney never called any of us, right? Because that's, that's straight up heresy. Um, can you imagine, it's like saying to Jesus, Jesus, I really love you, man, but your wife. Oh, baby, you're bright, uh, dysfunctional, hot mess. I mean, how in the world did you get connected? She's going to drag you down, Jesus. You're never going to reach your potential. I mean, just talk about an anchor, just a stinking mess. I love you, but you know what? You're bright. Gee, I just don't have time. Just a mess. It's like saying, it's not like saying this, Jesus really love you, you know, but everything you've given your life for, your mission, your prayers, your death, your resurrection, you know what? I'm just not, I'm just not, you're, it's losing somehow. I'm just not there. Can you, we're not talking about be, being saved, but can you live a life that honors Christ with disregard, disdain, apathy for the church? Well, well no, no, I don't, I don't think you can. How can you take, live a life? I mean, you've got Christ's values in you and, and Jesus is increasing and you're decreasing. Wouldn't, your heart love what his heart loves because Jesus is crazy in love with the church. And we say, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know why. It shouldn't be. This, this is something that I came across years ago that's helped me. So this is, see if this helps at, at all. That Jesus is praying for his, his church. He, he loves his church. Verse, I think it's verse uh, nine. And I don't have this on the screen, but listen to this for a second. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. That's the church. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus not praying for the world. Matter of fact, there's only one time that we have recorded where Jesus prayed for the world. He's on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So what he's doing is he's praying for these people who are in the world to get out of the world and become part of his his bride. That's the only prayer that is prayed for the world, we just need to watch, be careful a little bit as we pray for the world. What are we praying for? You gotta be careful praying for systems that dishonor God, that they're blessed. Just, just. So some would say Jesus hates the world. When Jesus does not. We know John 3 16, right? Most popular verse. No, no, no. God so loved the world. But, but throughout scripture, there are 
three, I'll say levels of God's love, but three kinds of God's love that are addressed pretty clearly. First of all is his inter-Trinitarian love. We talked about that last week. Love between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you weren't here, get to see, get, get to listen to it online. Um, it's, it's, it's a love Father, Son, Holy Spirit had between each other perfect Pure love. I mean, you you know, right? You're in with a family reunion or whatever. When everyone's getting along and everyone's loving on each other, that's the place to be, kind of like heaven versus everyone fighting. Can you imagine Father, Son, Holy, pure, 100% pure love? That's incredible. According to scripture, you've got, you've also got God loving the world. The rain falls, which is a blessing. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. He, he loves this world. For God so loved the world. Yes, there's a love there. But then there's a love in the middle. It's his love for his elect, for his church. John 13, 1. Look at this. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Next verse, chapter 15. Greater love, Jesus says, is no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. In 17, he's praying for unity. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. I mean, Jesus loves us. The Father loves us, but in a different, special sort of way. I, I, I've got some good friends that I love deeply. I, I'd do anything for them. I'd give my life for them. But it's not the same type of love I have for my kids. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. And I want to say there are degrees of, of love. I kind of love them only like on a seven, but these guys I love on a nine. It, it's just, but it's different, isn't it? Once you're in his family... One of his elect, there is a, 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 a love there, a, a intimacy there, a commitment there that is, 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 is amazing. And we see here that he loves the church. And you might say, well, again, I don't understand exactly why he loves the church. And that's a huge question. We're going to look at that. But I got to tell you, as we do, this is theology 501 stuff. And this is going to rattle some of y'all's theological cages pretty strongly. And I'm going to ask this, as we get into this, just just listen, hear out the whole thing before you, you make your judgments on this, okay? This is, this is intense stuff, but I'm trying to, to reflect Scripture as well as, as I can. Now, let's look at this. It's chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Who is the church? It says, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. He's sovereign over everything. To give eternal life to who? To all whom you have given him. Next. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they kept your word. Next. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Next verse. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. Did you kind of see a pattern here? Jesus really wants us to understand who his church is. 
We think sometimes that, that Jesus, and this is, this is the right, but we think that Jesus was God the Father's gift to us, and he was, but we don't think that we are God the Father's gift to Jesus, but we are. God gave us to Jesus. Before eternal life was secured, he selected, he gave to Christ. Jesus is so madly in love with this gift that the Father gave him that he's willing to go to the cross and die to secure their salvation. Have um, you ever, ever go through the kind of game in your head, if the house is on fire and everybody was out and the pets were out and you could go back and get one thing, what would you get? You know, that kind of deal. Different. One of the things that has made my list is I'll go to the my, my bedroom top drawer, kind of like my junk drawer, and I've got inside it, though, all of these cards that my kids have made me. We homeschooled, and so from earliest on, my, we would all make make cards for each other every Valentine's Day and every birthday. We'd all make we'd make cards for each other, and and, and those cards, I love those cards, not because they're works of art. Okay, none of them are going in the Louvre anytime soon. Um, not because the the materials they use were so priceless. Not because everything's spelled correctly, whatever, whatever else. But because I love those cards because. They represent to me people that I love the most loving me. And so I, 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 I love those things. You know, they're kind of cro- crooked sometimes at night, but I just know little hands working to glue things on and to put it all together because they love me. Jesus loves you, right? Primary reason he does. Not because you're looking real good. Not because the paper's priceless. Not because everything is spelled correctly and perfect. He loves you because God the Father gave you as a gift to his son. Because you represent a love gift from the Father. That's why Jesus loves you. You represent to him the love of the one he loves the most. Now, Thinking through this idea of God the Father gave us to Jesus. This can be a bit awkward. Okay, just listen to some texts. In John 6, 37-39, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now notice that the Father gives before they come. God doesn't just choose those who've chosen him. God's going to choose all those who've chosen him. That's really not a choice. God the Father didn't give us to Jesus in that case. We gave ourselves to Jesus by making the choice. No, no, God the Father gives to Jesus. Then they come, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. Ephesians 1, this mind-blowing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before we could do whatever, that that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to my good works. According to, no, 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 according to the purpose of his will. 
Romans 8, 29 and 30. Just listen to that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's a wild verse. Look at this. Acts 13, 48. This stuff's in the Bible. And when the Gentiles heard this, they heard Paul saying, I'm going to be a messenger to the Gentiles. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I'm wondering who appointed them to eternal life? God. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For consider your calling, our calling, brothers, calling, called. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, and not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, some, but not many. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, and God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus. Not because I'm, I'm humble and I understood and I was wise and I made the right call. No, no, no. Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, Key text is, is this whole election thing, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And just, just listen to this at one point. It says, uh, verse 9, and I don't have this on the screen. For this is what the promise said. You know, the angel's talking to Abraham here. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. You remember the story. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though that, listen to this, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. And you look at that and you go, you know what? That's just kind of stinking unfair. I mean, I mean, I mean, Paul knows that. He knows the questions that kick into our mind. And he, he, he preops this thing. He says, 19, chapter 9 of Romans, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, yeah, these guys didn't choose Christ, but they weren't chosen. What else could they do? And yeah, these guys did, but they were chosen. They didn't have a choice. They were chosen by God. And he says this, you're going to say, who finds fault? And then his answers, I'm looking for his answer right now. Okay, answer this, Paul. And Paul says this, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Hasn't the potter right over the clay? That's not the answer I want. I'm looking at, what is this? Just trust God. What kind of, what is that about? I don't, I don't like that. I want something, you know, and we know too, right? That this idea of, 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 it's not fair for God to choose me first. It's only fair if I choose first. See, that's, that's what's fair. That's really kind of a Western concept. There's cultures in this world that have no problem with the sovereign making decisions that are going to impact their life radically. But Western, we're independent. That's, that's the deal. God's sovereignty in our salvation. There are dozens of texts like this. God's sovereignty in our salvation is undeniably biblical. We got we got we got to we got to start there. 
And, and, and I know we got questions and we're saying, wait, hey, 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 wait, wait, wait. I thought I chose. I am sure I chose. I remember when I chose. What are you, what are you talking about? Yes, you probably did because your decision, your choice and your salvation is undeniably biblical. Just check, just check this out. Amazing, amazing stuff. John 17, 6, right? This was our verse. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours there were and you gave them to me. Check out what's next. And they have kept your word. In other words, there's something they had to do. They had to embrace it. They had to receive it. They had to accept it. Now, this is all over scripture. This idea of salvation is appealed to the whole world. Everybody. Just, just listen to this. Isaiah 55, 1. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Jesus says the same sort of thing in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Check out this. This was, this was amazing in light of what we just went over. John 5 says, you search the scriptures. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is not saying, you're not coming because you're not elect, buddy. He's saying, you've chosen, you refuse. He's blaming it on on them. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And you say, wait, wait, wait a minute. This, I mean, how does this work that whosoever will may come? And yet, for as many as were pointed to eternal life believed. It seems to me like they're kind of opposites here. What's going on? I mean, how does this work? And you need to know, I have no clue how it works. And I am, I am 56. And from a, I grew up in the church, and from a young age, I love theology, and I have read tons on this issue. This issue has split churches, it has split denominations, it has split all kinds of believers. Uh, this, this issue, I've gone to conferences that were supposed to solve this for me. I've heard all kinds of theories and ideas, and I'll just be honest with you, I have not heard anything that you don't have to be creative in your hermeneutics to, you know, basically explaining away one side to, to put these together. I don't know how they work. I know this. I trust my God. I'm assuming that he's a little bit bigger than I am, that he loves people more than I do. He's got his name, right? It's his steadfast love. His, his love blows mine away. I trust him. I don't know how to answer this. But, but here, here's, here's, where, here's our issue. Right, we've got the we chose, we got the God chose groups of people. Most of us, I'm guessing, kind of kind of lean into this direction, and partially because we look at this and we go, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And there, there certainly are questions. I got it. I got it. I mean, me, I got questions too. But don't just focus there. We got to come back over here. Sometimes you can't be at a place where you're denying one set of scripture, where you're taking verses all out, cutting them out of God's word, and just blowing them all off. You know who does that? Cults do that. If you get to a place where you're going to say, I don't understand that verse, it's out of here. I don't like that verse, it's gone. Well, you're just making up your own religion. This has nothing to do with, with God. I was in Romans class where they had that chapters 9, 10, 11, big election thing. We had to write a paper on that. I wrote my paper on that, and I was way, I was way over here in this camp, way big time. And, and my, my professor was way over here in this camp, right? So I, I wrote my paper. And I know I put in more work than anyone else in that class. And I know I had more footnotes and I had studied so much and my paper was longer, but it was good. I'm telling you, it was good. And I got a D minus on that paper. And I went and I talked to him and he said, he said, he said, 
Mark, this is what I felt when I read your paper. I felt that you had already determined where you were going. And you weren't looking at the scripture, letting the scripture mold your heart. Your heart was seeking to mold the scripture. You already determined what was right. And so you were kind of making the scripture say. And I thought, yeah, that's right. That's where I, that's exactly where I, where I was. And so you don't want to ignore. It's okay to say, I have no clue how this works. I do know God chose me. I am a love gift from the father for my, for his son. And I know that it wasn't against my will. I got that down. And again, we have a tendency to keep looking over here, and then we need to sometimes. But don't forget to look over here. Don't forget to stop and realize, I am a love gift from the Father to the Son. Not because I'm really good. Not because I'm really smart, smarter than anybody else, and I could figure this out. I don't know why he chose me. doesn't make any sense. You know, when you hold these things in tension, instead of grabbing just one, I mean, this has a... Huge implications for eternal security. The folk who are way over here say, since I chose to get in, I can choose to get out. The folk that are way over here, way over here, are emphasizing huge their works because they got to anchor their security in what they're doing. And I, maybe I send enough to lose it. And maybe I'm just not doing what I'm, maybe I don't have enough faith. And, but when you're over, when you, when you focus over here, what are you doing? I'm not here because I've earned it. I'm not here because I'm here because I'm a love gift from the Father to the Son. Amazing, amazing stuff. The, the implications for so to hold them both in tension. You need to know Scripture never pits these two together. Never. Philippians. Look at this. Philippians. I love this this verse. Philippians two it says, "Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." Right. Work it out. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, which am I working it out or is God working out? Yes, that's the answer. Yeah, absolutely. He's going to go on and he's going to just going to say, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but, but Christ lives in me. But the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So they, the scripture never pits these things to get against each other. This is not to be an issue of division. This is not to be an issue of breaking up the church. Jesus included it, I think, to build the church to draw close, draws close together. When we realize, I am a love gift. Jesus loves me because the Father gave me to him as that's, that's, I feel like a Moses deal. It's just awe. In, in, uh, Romans 9, 10, 11, that whole election thing, at the end of 11, Paul's writing on this stuff, right? And at 11, he just stops and he breaks into awesome worship and he says, Oh, the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his ways, his ways past finding out. He pulls a Moses in 30, Exodus 34. It's just worship. This is amazing. It's mind-blowing. Who can figure this out? Paul says, I can't. But I worship God because of it. Because I trust him. Because he's good. Because he's faithful. Because he loves more than I, I ever could. Because for whatever reason, he loves, he loves me. So let me ask you, do you love the church? Jesus loves the church, and you might again say, no, I I can't. See, I've been hurt badly by the church. 
my dad quit going because he was hurt so badly by the church. I've, I've been hurt badly by the church. Many people I love dearly have been hurt badly by the church. You might say, well, I can't go to the church because there are like prickly people there. Well, there are prickly people in the church, no question about it. Um, but if, no, no excuses here, but if you were to get close to some of these prickly people, and if they allowed you to see their heart and soul, which they may not, many of them never have anybody, but if they did, if you were able, you might see so much baggage, you'd think nobody should be able to carry this much baggage. You might see so many scars that you would step back and go, just with adoration for this person, of how far they've, they've come. Again, no excuses. We all need to be growing. But, but, but we give a lot more grace when we understand somebody's story, don't we? You say, well, I'm not interested in the church. Hypocrites are there. Yeah, I, I know, I know. And dysfunctional people in the church. Yeah, yeah, I know. And there are. And this is why there are. Because dysfunctional people are, are ridiculed and rejected by the world. Unless you've got bucks and brains and brawn, the world doesn't want anything to do with you. If you have stuff that they can, can use, then they want you, man. Oh, yeah. But as soon as you can't help them out, you're kicked to the curb. Jesus says, those people kicked to the curb, those are the people that I love, I want and so those folk find healing and solace and they bring the fact that they've been beat up like who knows what by this world into, into the church. It's who they are. And some of us are not going to be completely healed till we get to heaven. It's just this way it is. So if you want a, a, a community of perfection, you know, this is just not the place. This is not the place. You know, all of those things are true, but here's what we've got to keep in mind. The church is Christ's Bride. Jesus loves the church. And get this, when he saved us, he called us to it. Now, you don't have to go to church to be saved, but if someone's deciding I'm not part of it, then I would say they really don't understand their salvation very well. Because he saved us to be part of the community of the redeemed. That we certainly are not reflecting the, 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 the love of, of, of the Trinity right now, but that's what he's called us to. This is amazing. We've been called not to be in the Trinity, right? We're not, we're not God, but we've called to be in this inner circle that angels are not even allowed to be in. We're called to be in that. And, and, and check this out. One day, I mean, Jesus is not Don Quixote. Jesus is not fighting a losing battle here. One day, scripture says this is what he's going to do. He's going to take his church. And he's going to present her blameless, spotless. All the scandal and, and sin and Satan stuff is out of there. It's going to be pure holiness, pure power. The beauty will be unimaginable. It will be such that the gates of hell won't even cr- won't just crash, but, but hell itself will shudder because of, of the awesomeness of his church. His church will be that one day. Now, we're not exactly there yet. I, I got it. But this is what he's called us to. And he's equipped all of us there. And so can you love Jesus and hate his church? No. John says this. Anyone who says, I love God, John 420. First John 420. Anyone who says, I love God and hates his brother. He's not talking about his biological brother. He's talking about the church. Love God, hate your brother. You're a liar, he says. So I mean, it's, it's, it's intense, intense stuff. So, and this is real, real, real quick. I, I, I want to love the church. This, you know, this is where it starts. Uh, it starts with, it just starts with a commitment. 
Uh, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Not just love your, your wives when they're perfect, when they're sexy, when they're fun, when they think you're wonderful, when they've got nothing but good names for you. No, no, no. You, you love them if all those things are opposite. Because love is a choice, not a feeling, right? Even if they're just pokey and, and mean and everything, you love them. That's what you're, because that's what Christ loves us. And you know the c- c- condition we're in. And he loves us. And so sometimes what it comes down to is just a choice, saying I'm not loving and giving my life for it and committing my life to your church, Jesus, like you have, because they're such a wonderful group of folk. But I am because it's your bride, because it's the way you have no plan B. It's your plan A for reaching this world. I am a part. Count me in, Jesus. I want to to decrease living for myself. I want to increase for you. Do you love the church? The rest of this prayer in John 17 is being praying for the church, but you got to know you can't get there unless you love it first. Would you pray with me? And I want to give you just a second opportunity to commit yourself to the church. Maybe you've been dating the church. Consumeristic kind of mindset. Maybe you've never really committed yourself to that. Because we're his love gift, because this is why he's called us, because this is his plan, because of what he's going to do here one day, is to commit to him. Lord, would you forgive me? God, I am thankful, even in the midst of all of our mess, and it seems like the messier ones hit the headlines, but there's a lot of faithfulness in your church, Lord. None of us are perfect. But we're proud that you've called us to be part of it. And I can't think of anything greater to give our lives to than that which you gave your life to. And so would you help us? Would you remind us? Would you help us to see your church not through the world's eyes, but through your eyes, Lord Jesus? I would ask that that would be so. Thank you, too, for this offering we're about to receive. May it only go forth, God, in the building up of your church. Anything else, stop it. Put put the brakes there. May it just go the building up of your church, that this world may know, like Jesus prayed, that he'd be glorified so that you, Father, would be glorified. Amen.